I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Carrie Miller. This is Midmorning on Minnesota Public Radio News. What has happened this past spring in the Middle East may challenge even the vivid imagination of my guest. Could she have dreamt up revolutions carried along by Facebook and hip-hop, Could she have written the story of tyrants taken down by teens and 20-year-olds? Can she imagine what's to come in a place she so strongly identifies with? Novelist Diana Abu-Jaber heard the tales of her father's Jordanian homeland, and she says they exerted such a powerful influence on her imagination that they still influencer writing today. A conversation this hour about identity, imagination, and why food turns up so often in her stories. Her new novel is titled Birds of Paradise, and she joins me this morning from Sarasota, Florida, where, Diana, it's a lot warmer than it is in Minnesota. So welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Carrie. I'm glad that it's not 47 degrees here. (laughs) (laughs) So you've always been immersed in stories, but you heard you heard what I said in the introduction here. I wonder if you'd have been hard pressed to dream up a story that matches what has been happening in in a place that's been very important to your heritage. Oh, it's really been uh, astounding to me, and certainly something that I could never have uh, envisioned happening. Um, especially in the way it has the systematic kind of feeling of uprising and explosion and the promise, the excitement of it. It's all, um, it's the kind of thing that if you tried to write about it, people would say, no, that's not believable. So yeah, in fiction, uh, sometimes you find out that the truth is harder to believe than the novel that you've made up. You've said that your father, um, who grew up in Jordan, was very determined to keep that part of your ancestry alive in in a very yes. vivid way. How did he do that? Well, for my father, uh, it happened in certain oblique ways. Um, he was a very big storyteller. He still is. And uh, he loved to linger at the dinner table. What we would do is he would cook. He was a very serious Middle Eastern cook. And after dinner, we would you know, clear away the dishes, and my father would stay behind and talk to us about his childhood. And for me, food and cooking and storytelling all became intertwined. Um, Dad used his cooking as a medium for his stories, and Mm. so different kinds of dishes and ingredients led into stories about cousins and walking in the field and the lamb that he used to uh, raise and um, they all kind of flowed together in this this delicious way, so that for me, uh, storytelling is a form of eating, and uh, they're both delicious. So, so this explains. I, I wasn't sure about that. Where the just this idea that food really is so integral to to the stories that you're telling comes from? Was it your dad that was was the good cook, or, or both of your parents? 
Oh, uh, I hope my mom doesn't hear this, but <laughs> I have to tell you, my dad is the chef in the family. Um, it was always his dream to own his own restaurant. And so I grew up with that longing uh, throughout my childhood. And uh, he was really the, the primary cook uh, when we were growing up. When I went off on my own and, and started college and, and thereafter, I always thought that I would cook professionally as a way to support my writing. And um, I was very serious about it as well, but I had jobs at places like Denny's and, you know, little <laughs> short order chef places. And that really cured me of any kind of romance around. Why? Yeah. Why? Oh, boy. You know, you come home from that kind of a gig and your hair is stinky and your clothes smell like old grease. And, you know, I'd be dead on my feet. So I really I got very little writing done during that time. I realized I'd rather write about it than perform. You know, prepare it professionally. So that's what I did. I segued into food journalism and and uh, writing about dishes, and that inevitably spilled into my my novels and my fiction writing. So, Diana, there was a time though when you imagined that you would be this genteel chef by day <laughs> and writer by night. <laughs> yes, like, oh, yes. <laughs> sounds like a pretty nice combination. Wouldn't um, that be great? One of the things you, you've said uh, about food and community intrigued me. You say food is such a great human connector. It's so intimate. I, I wonder if you think that we've gotten away a little bit from the intimacy of, of what food means in, in our communities. And, and I ask that because while people seem to be much more interested these days in, in food, they're watching the Food Channel and, uh, you know, and cele- celebratizing chefs, a lot of people are still not cooking very much yes. at home. And it's a rare thing to have a whole family sit down for dinner, at least in this country. Yeah, it's really uh, curious to me how uh, food and cooking has has indeed become very um, famous, celebrated. Uh, we love it, but it's almost a cerebral activity. Um, a number of people have told me they love reading cookbooks and paging through them, but they do it um, almost as an intellectual pursuit. They don't actually make any of the dishes in the cookbooks. Um, huh. and, and I suppose that's, you know, inevitable with, uh, you know, reliance on technology and TV and that sort of thing. But I am asked over and over at my readings that, uh, people will say, how do you get your family to sit down at the table together? Um, and that does seem to go right to the core of the question. How do we get everyone to just sit down for a little while? Um, and how do we get somebody else to make the food for us so we can <laughs> sit down and eat it? Um, so I think, yeah, it really is about um, sacrificing some of one's schedule, some of one's time, and really looking hard at what we want to make happen in our homes. You know, for me, um, I have found that I have to I have to sacrifice some of my writing time if I want to cook. And um, it's a constant battle. I, I won't sugarcoat it. It's hard. Mm. Um, it doesn't come to me naturally. I want to spend my time writing, but I want to sit down with my family and eat. And so that's the, that's the choice I make every day. 
I I wondered about your background in cooking because some of the recipes in, and I should say one of the lead characters in the novel, this new one, Birds of Paradise, is a pastry chef, basically, right? She's She's got a little home bakery in her house. Yes. The, yes. the recipes, Diana, are so detailed. I mean, mm. as if you'd you'd test you'd home tested them before you put them in the novel. Did you? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I will say that I grew up also with a very serious baker. My grandmother, my um, uh, German Irish grandmother, was a very very serious baker, and she gave her entire. Uh, kitchen and really her apartment over to her baking every year on a yearly basis, pouring herself into holiday cookies and cakes and um, baking for friends. She was not professional and she didn't want to be a professional chef um, the way the the baker in Birds of Paradise does, but she was very serious about it. So I grew up uh, immersed in in cookies and baking and cakes and sweets and um, and to me, it is extremely powerful. It's a, a really important medium, the medium of baking. And so I drew almost directly on so many of those those um, pastries for the character of Avis. And um, I will say that a number of the more laborious cookies were experiments <laughs> That I never want to repeat again. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so. so this is, this is a good time since we've gotten onto this for me to ask you if you will read just a couple paragraphs from that that part of the novel. Um, it's sure. where Avis is making these intricate cookies, and now I know why you describe this as a medium of baking because there is nothing superficial going on here. This is a very serious pursuit. So, just a couple paragraphs about that, if you will. Sure. She feels invigorated, punitive, and steely as she moves through the steps of the recipe. It was from one of her mother's relatives, perhaps even Avis's grandmother. Black, bitter sweets, a kind of cookie requiring slow melting in a double boiler, then baking, layering, and torching, hours of work simply to result in nine dark squares of chocolate and jandua tucked within pieces of pâté sucré. The chocolate is hard, intense flavor against the rich hazelnut and the wisps of sweet crust, a startling cookie. Geraldine theorized that the cookie must have been invented to give to enemies something exquisitely delicious with a tiny yield. The irony, from Avis's professional perspective, was that while one might torment enemies with too little, it also exacted an enormous labor for such a small revenge. That's Diana Abu-Jaber reading from her newest novel, Birds of Paradise. It's a story that unfolds in Miami, but one of the lead characters is a baker who uses the, as Diana has said, medium of baking to uh, let's just say work out some of her frustrations, her her problems, <laughs> deal with some of the issues of her family. If you'd like to join the conversation, I don't. I I know there are people out there who uh, who re- can really relate to this, Diana, who are expert bakers and chefs. Perhaps they'd like to weigh in on the medium of food and its importance to community. Eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight 
If you're in the Twin Cities, 651-227-6000. If you're online this morning, nprnews.org. And if you're on Twitter, you can reach me at Carrie NPR. Um, I was I heard a story the other day, and I was thinking about you in this novel um, that was about new research on the taste receptors that we're born with and how that influences the way we taste. And I, I hmm. wonder if you're interested in that kind of science, given your interest in food. Well, I, I am interested in the subjective experience of taste. And uh, I know that I've read a little bit about experiments on people that are called tasters, people who have extreme taste buds and extreme abilities. I'm married to someone who is a a smeller. Um, (laughs) A super smeller? A super smeller, yes, indeed. It's very tough to be married to someone like that, too. Um, He smells everything. and, And it really does impact his experience of the world. Um, as a novelist, it's a fascinating way of looking at how we filter our experience because we assume we're all occupying the same experience in the same world, but we're actually not. Um, and that's been something that has come up particularly in Birds of Paradise because I'm getting into the experience of tasting, baking, the dark side of sugar, as well as the sweet side. And all of that comes through the uh, physical experience. You you are getting into the dark side of sugar, which was really interesting, because again, Mm. this is an an ingredient that your lead character could do nothing without. She honors it. But she's she's also aware of, as you say, that dark side. Talk about that for a minute. Well, it's it's a big tension in the book because um, here she is, this very accomplished pastry chef, and she's obsessed with beauty. She loves the beauty of the pastry, the the delight of the sweetness of it. But it's also a kind of brittle facade, you know. It's something that keeps her encaged. And, um, you know, one of the central um, themes of the book is that her daughter has run away quite mysteriously. And a part of the problem is that her daughter was so exquisitely beautiful that it's almost as if Avis, the chef, couldn't see her. She only sees beauty. She only sees sweetness in the world. And uh, I was very interested in exploring, if you will, the toxic side of sugar and the toxic side of beauty itself. Diana Abu-Jaber is with us. She's a novelist, and we're talking about her new novel, Birds of Paradise, talking about the interconnecting themes of food, her heritage from the Middle East, and as she says, the family questions, the, the homeless teens, the idea of the impact of beauty on someone. To the phones to Mo in St. Cloud. Hi, you're on Good Morning. Hi, I, I just, uh, you con- conversed about uh, the smell of things, and it resonated with me. I'm a chef and a culinary instructor at a local college here in St. Cloud, and uh, I re- remember walking into my Sicilian grandmother's kitchen and opening up her cabinet uh, of spices and just smelling them, and, and that's really something that kind of propelled me to do what I do today. Mm. 
That's wonderful. I, I think smell is so evocative. I don't they say that the uh, the part of our brain where we smell things is directly uh, adjacent to our memory center. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're intertwined. Diana, how how many times have you returned to um, your dad's homeland to Jordan? I've been back several times. When I was growing up, uh, my father kept trying to relocate us. You know, he never made his peace with being in the United States. And so really, we would, yeah, it was a constant, constant struggle. And uh, we we went back uh, three or so times when I was growing up and tried living there, but he always missed the States. And uh, now as an adult, I go back. I try to go back every other year if I can. But I will say, like the the caller was just commenting on, every time I get off the airplane, I feel like the that's the first thing that tells me I'm back. That's home what I was thinking Jordan. of, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you inhale the the scent of that Jordanian air and say, yes. "Well, I'm home." In in yes. a way, it's very unique. It's very it's a it's completely unique to Jordan. It's that it's the dust it's the cumin it's the the sunlight if you can smell sunlight you smell it when you get off that airplane and it's completely unique to that that time and place for me so in the end your dad uh, you just could not make a go of it permanently in jordan and ended up back here in the states well, it's funny. I think um, this is probably something that all immigrants are aware of once they leave. But you change. You change in the process of moving to another country, even though you may intend to go back. Um, my father became very Americanized, and he would go back to Jordan because he missed it terribly. But then he would also miss the United States terribly, and he could not relax after a certain point he's he is a completely divided person now he loves <laughs> both places and um it's always a a little bit of a struggle for him Roseanne in Hudson, Wisconsin, says, My son was seriously injured recently. He lives in California. The only thing that's therapeutic for me is baking his favorite cookies. Yes, the lead mm. character in this novel, there is a therapy that she's working out with all of this baking, even though it's laborious for her. That's right. It's it's the one thing that she can turn to after her daughter runs away. The excruciating pain of that loss is so profound for Avis that um, she immerses herself in pastry and the most laborious classical French pastry, the, the kind in which you can completely l- almost lose consciousness of everything else because it requires so much work. Um, there's something deeply meditative, really uh, almost zen-like about the practice of baking, stirring, kneading, um, to me, it's incredibly gratifying and entirely therapeutic. To the phones to Ellen in Minneapolis. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for waiting. Hi, Diana. It's Ellen Lansky from Inver Hills Community College. <laughs> Hi, Ellen. How are you? <laughs> An old friend of mine. Yeah. Good. How are you doing? Um, my students and Diana have had a long-running conversation about the recurring image of uh, images of birds, mm. um, m- more specifically in, in her first novel, Arabian Jazz, which is our cult favorite. But Dana, <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk about um, the new, you know, the new image of birds and birds of paradise. 
Oh, isn't it terrible? I just keep going back to that bird. Um, <laughs> and I don't know what the heck that is. Um, it's, it's funny. Somebody told me that uh, if you are a, an adherent of Jungian psychology, that hmm. our books are our, um, our great metaphor, our books are a great filter, and that you'll reveal yourself whether you want to or not. The things that obsess and haunt you will appear in your books. And for some reason, birds, for me, are very, very powerful. And, and Ellen's absolutely right. They come up again and again in, in my books. In um, this one, it's really tied to the idea of beauty and freedom, um, the because the daughter is so gorgeous, um, she's exquisite in the sense of a bird of paradise, but she's also encaged by it. So beauty is at once its its power and it's its cage. And uh, I kept returning to that image of a, of a bird in a cage, um, as well as the tropical birds that appear in the neighbor's yards, because that came right out of my own neighborhood. Several of my neighbors had, yeah, loud tropical birds. So yeah, that was reality, I'm afraid. <laughs> Who were squawking you awake every morning? All day long. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Ellen, thanks very much for the call. I, I, I want to mention, Diana, that you there is a lot of detail about the life of this young girl who who runs away from her family and basically lives on the streets and on the beach in Miami. I it, I mean, you seem to understand and not and I don't want to say not in a superficial way where you were just throwing in gritty details, but the isolation, the loneliness, and yet the thing that stops her from going back to her family. Give me a sense about how you how you tried to understand that. Well, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, I did do a fair amount of research. I walked around um, Miami Beach in particular, which is really haunted by a youth culture um, and several strata of youth culture. There's um, kids who are living on the street, kids who are down and out, and kids who are at the absolute pinnacle of our economic um, class structure. Uh, so you can see everything. If you just walk down Lincoln Road or you walk along the beach, you see the entire youth culture mm. as if under a microscope. Um, and I did spend a lot of time right there on the sand and on the street talking to kids. Um, I, you know, and I also, I teach college. I teach at Portland State University, and a number of my students are very young. I have um, teenagers still in some of my classes. Um, so a lot of it is um, it's just sheer exposure and conversation. And then I think a lot of it is TV. You know, mm. I, I'm married to a, a pop culture junkie. And, um, you know, watching MTV, watching um, reality TV, it's amazing how much you can soak up um, simply by immersing yourself in popular culture. And I, I really do think that a lot of the lingo, the rhythms, the dialect for me came through TV. I think it's interesting, though, you're exploring, I mean, th this girl, what she's 15, 14 or 15 when she runs away and, and goes to live basically right. on the streets. That's right. You, you're exploring the idea, though, of how quickly those kids age 
uh, and even the kids themselves are aware of that, and not just in a not just in a physical way, but in a psychological way. I mean, they know how what a toll this is taking on them, yes. and yet yes. there's resistance to to returning to what we would think of as the good life. Yes. For Felice, the daughter, it's incredibly exhausting. It's very, very draining. Um, and that's something that you do see. If you talk to kids who have run away from home or are living on the street, they know. They know that they could go back to their parents' homes and return to comparative luxury and in a lot of cases, and they refuse. And that is really uh, heartbreaking and fascinating to me that a, a child would choose absolute deprivation over what we would consider the comforts of home. Well, there's something that's not right at home. You know, there's something they're just not getting at home that's certainly the case for Felice, that even though she is raised in a fairly luxurious home with a loving set of parents, um, she feels a little lost. She feels deeply lost. I, I, something very terrible happens to her, and she has to meet that challenge. But she also has to leave that comfortable home and go out into the world in order to find the, the deep parts of herself that she she hasn't been given yet. Well, I mean, that's what I found interesting about this, that the, that the idea that she goes through this experience and it's it's transformative in a in a negative way. But mm-hmm. the reaction to that is not to move deeper into the into the family structure for comfort, but to enhance the isolation and the loneliness that she feels as a result of what has happened to her. Yes, yes. It's it's almost a kind of odyssey, you know, if you you think about the idea of the heroic journey in which um, the protagonist, whether male or female, has to go voyaging. They have to go forth in order to test themselves and find out what they're made out of. You know, do I have the metal in myself to live in this world? Can I deal with what the world is going to throw at me? And, um, excuse me, it's particularly interesting for me in the case of Felice, because she is beautiful, we tend to think of beauty as this incredible advantage, but in fact, it can be almost damning. It can be a kind of powerful disempowerment um, because she has learned to rely only on the physical and she hasn't had a chance to develop what's inside of her yet. You know, that idea of the Odyssey, uh, again, not to play psychoanalyst here, but you did bring <laughs> up Young a little earlier. Um, I mean, that that is a thread in your family history, right? Your father coming to the United States from Jordan, making that journey and then making the journey back and then going back and forth. You've got some of that in your in your own personality, it sounds like. Is this oh, is this yes. something you're working out in the books? <laughs> All all my books, all my books are me working it out. Um, absolutely, I think the uh, the search for home is one of my own obsessions because of growing up with an immigrant parent, um, and that's something that I've found talking with other writers and readers that 
Um, even if you weren't raised in an immigrant family, a number of people do seem to be searching for the place where they feel at home in themselves and, and in the world. Um, and I think that it's often elusive. We're such a mobile society. We change and we pick and choose cities now. Um, they're not simply handed down through the generations the way they used to be. So how do we do it? How do we find a place where we feel we deeply belong? Um, living in Miami is so curious to me because it is um, a fascinating community a community of expatriates, of immigrants, of mm. homegrowns and natives, but we're all there together, and we somehow, by gathering together, we make a new kind of community and a new kind of home. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, you're surrounded by people who are at some different stage of their odyssey in in a physical way, right? They've decided yes. to move there. They've come from another country uh, they've moved from some other part, perhaps, of the United States. That's a thing that that community really embraces. Oh, yes. In a way, yeah, maybe. It's the, almost, yeah, go ahead. It's a, I was going to say a kind of a new experiment. I mean, that that is a large part of why I set Birds of Paradise in Miami. I felt like that uniqueness, that unique character of displacement and recreation was so vital and so um, uh, volatile, mm. so interesting to look at how how can you bring together such different sorts of people? Can you make it a home? You have also talked about the challenge while, while we're talking about the uh, the issue of immigration, of telling Arab stories in American literature. And, and your friend Ellen mentioned one of your other novels, Arabian Jazz, I was surprised to read that a movie producer suggested that you, who might be interested in making a film from it, suggested that you would have to take Arab, Arabian, out of the title. Is, is that true? That is absolutely true. I was at, at a meeting. I mean, it, the book was optioned for about three minutes, you know, but um, I, I, I actually took a meeting, as we say, uh -huh. in Hollywood. And um, there there they were around a big table talking about, well, how could this book be made into a film? Well, you know, they liked the story. They liked the, the family, the idea of marrying off the younger daughters. and But they just didn't like that word Arabian. And, uh, yeah, people were saying, well, could we make it um, Jamaican, perhaps, or Italian, or, you know, <laughs> The book is That's called bizarre. Arabian Jazz. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, I could tell you many stories. Well, do like well. Tell me another story of this. <laughs> I, I find this puzzling. What what's the what's the attitude? Enlighten mm. me a little bit here, Diana. Well, times have changed a lot. You know, I have to say, my first book, Arabian Jazz, came out back in the early nineties. Was you know ninety three, ninety four, and um, so the world was different then. But uh, when the manuscript was first being sent around to publishers, a very prominent publisher who read it um, wrote back. The editor said that she loved the story, she responded to it, but that she felt that Arabs were not politically appropriate. <laughs> and <laughs> meaning, yeah. meaning what? I mean, how do you interpret that in American novels or generally mm -hmm. or what? 
Yeah, I you know I I should have gone back for elaboration, yeah. but um, the way I read it was a kind of fear, uh, a, a wariness, an uncertainty of the image of the Arab and the Arab American in mainstream American culture, and um, I mean certainly at the time. I was not aware of having read other books or seen films in which Arabs or Arab Americans were presented in a, um, you know, just a sympathetic light, just a, you know, day-to-day human light, only maybe as as villains. Um, so, and, and that was, wasn't because they weren't being written either. That was just my own ignorance. You know, these books and these films were not available to mainstream Americans. So well, what do you um, what about now? I think it's changed quite a bit. I'm I'm really happy to say there's a whole new generation of Arab American writers who are coming of age and doing wonderful exciting stuff, you know, um uh, Joe Giha's collection of short stories through and through Randa Jarrar's um, novel, A Map of Home, you know, Naomi Shihab Nye, a fantastic poet. I, um, you know, there's just so many wonderful writers who are doing exciting things and who are breaking through to larger audiences. So it's definitely changed quite a bit. You know, my own metaphors have sort of broadened. My, my palette has kind of um, move toward a a broader American identity. But I feel like the Arab piece of my own heritage will always, it'll always sneak into the books. It will always be a piece of what I write about. Well, maybe it's time to take that meeting again with that movie producer who didn't (laughs) get it. What do you think? (laughs) Right on, you guys. Come back. Uh, Birds of Paradise is made for the silver screen. (laughs) Well, we've got a director listening in. (laughs) Maybe he'll be listening. Diana, a real pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, Carrie.